Good morning. Oh, well, yes, good morning still, <laughs> Redeemer. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. It's a wonderful part of God's Word. And we'll get into it in just a few minutes. But I wanted to start uh, by actually looking forward a couple of weeks to when we continue in John's Gospel. Because today uh, I'm going to finish chapter 7, and in two weeks' time, Pastor Chris will be uh, resuming our time in John's Gospel from chapter 8, verse 12. So you might wonder, what happened to 8, verses 1 to 11? It's a wonderful story. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus calling on the authorities to let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But you might notice that in your Bibles, there are brackets around it. And your Bibles will have a little note that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And that means that while it's a moving story, it may have been something that happens, something that Jesus said, it probably wasn't a part of the gospel that the Apostle John wrote when he wrote it. And that could raise some questions for us. Well, how can we trust what's in the Bible then? Uh, how, how many other parts of the Bible are like this? Yet I think if we spend a few minutes to think about this and think about how it is we get our, our English Bibles, that will actually help us to become more confident uh, that when we open our Bibles, we are hearing the words of God as he gave them to us uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, so let's, let's have a think about that. I will start with the Apostle John, who lived with Jesus, who saw Jesus' life, death, resurrection firsthand. Uh, He wrote his gospel probably about 80 AD, around there, uh, later in his life, after he'd experienced all of this. And we don't have John's original gospel. We don't have any ancient document, the actual papyrus it was written on. So how do we get from that papyrus to our English Bible? Well, to start with, uh, the gospel was written, uh, John's gospel in the New Testament was written in ancient Greek, while the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that's in Greek. Uh, and our Bibles today, they're translated from the Greek. Uh, that's why at GTS, we teach our students to learn ancient Greek, biblical Greek. One of the amazing things that happens when you learn to read the Bible in its original language is you see that actually our English translations are very good. They are very good, so that builds confidence. But how do we get to like our current version of the Greek New Testament and therefore the English? Well, we, we need uh, manuscripts, uh, copies. As I said, we don't have the original, um, and we don't have any original of any ancient document, but we've got copies, lots of cost- copies. Um, And through scientific dating techniques, as we find these copies, we can figure out about when they were written. And so you can go to different museums and libraries around the world today, and you can see uh, some of these. You could go and see a small fragment of John's Gospel uh, there from 125 AD, maybe sort of 40 years after it was written. Uh, That's a part of John's Gospel. Uh, There's many fragments, but you can also find full copies of John's Gospel from 200 AD, about 120 years after it was written. Uh, You could find lots more of them. uh, That You can find an almost complete New Testament in 250 AD and full ones from about 350 AD. So uh, these are all sitting in museums around the world. Uh, If you can get the access, you uh, you can go and see them today. Now, 40 years 
or a hundred years might seem a long time between something being written and us having a copy that we can go and hold today. But in terms of ancient texts, this is tiny. Uh, Most ancient documents that we regard as history, we've got just a few manuscripts and they can be written from a thousand years after they were originally written. We don't have a copy for so much ancient history um, until maybe a thousand years after it was written. The second closest in terms of documents we get is the Greek writer Homer. His book, The Iliad, uh, we've got almost 2,000 manuscripts starting from 400 years after it was written. That's how we know lots of Greek history. But when it comes to the New Testament, we've got 25,000 manuscripts starting from maybe 30 years after they were first written. It does not compare more than any ancient document uh, we can be confident that actually what the, the text as it was written, because we've got so many manuscripts, 25,000. But that raises the question, why do we have a little bit in brackets in John chapter 8? Why do so many of us love it, yet I'm saying it probably wasn't in the Gospel of John? Well, in 1611, uh, the King James Version was created. Uh, they translated into English from the manuscripts they had, uh, many of which included uh, this, this story of the woman caught in adultery. And since then, many people have read the King James Version and others and, and loved that story. But since 1611, we've dug up a lot more manuscripts, thousands and thousands more now. And when we dig up all those manuscripts, we can start to see that while, okay, some of those, some of those manuscripts, they, they included this story, and then others that copied from then included the story. And while there's a few other places in the New Testament where maybe a word seems different and maybe someone made a, a copy error and then it got copied, with 25,000 documents, we can create big computer models of all of these and try to trace where these errors came from, where they were copied from and to. And when we do that, we can get very confident about what the original text said. So many copies, and we can trace and say, well, the earliest ones, obviously, are closer to the original, and we can pick up, okay, there was an error here that got carried in, an error there. And then as we, trans- we get our, our English Bibles today, we can be very confident that we have the words as they were written by the Apostle John. Now, we believe we have a sovereign God. He wants to make himself known. He wants to be clear to us. So by his sovereign hand, he has helped us to to keep the the text as he gave it. But even as we do more archaeology, as we dig up more ancient documents, science archaeology just confirms what we believe, that our God has preserved for us a Bible that we can trust, a Bible where we can see him clearly and truly. I like to think of the Bible a bit like an HD television. It might have a million pixels, uh, just like the, the New Testament just has so much information in it. But if there's maybe two pixels out of a million which are a bit broken or you can't quite tell what colour they are, are they going to distort the picture on your HD TV? Are they going to deceive you so you see something different? Not at all. Uh, the New Testament, we can trust. There's, there's a couple of words here and there, a couple of sections where we say, oh, this manuscript says this, the other, this manuscript says that. It's hard to decide. But that's like two pixels in an HDTV. Uh, God has given us 
his word. We have his word today that we can trust, uh, that we have the scripture as he wanted to give it to us. And thinking about the scripture is interesting. I hope it's been helpful. Uh, feel free to come and ask me more questions or especially like some GTS faculty. I'm sure they'd love to speak more, could give more information. But better than thinking about God's word is actually listening to it, gazing into that TV and meeting our God face to face. And that's what we're going to do right now. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are a speaking God. I thank you that you've made yourself known and thank you for Jesus. Help us to see him clearly now. Help us to respond as we ought. Let us be those who heed your call, your invitation to come and drink. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Living in Dubai, one thing you learn pretty quickly is that you need water only takes a minute out in the hot, dry sun to realise that you need water and you're thirsty. People outside of Dubai assume it's always dry here, but then we know it's not. It's Right now it's getting very humid. And even when it's humid, you still get very thirsty. Even if you've managed to stay inside in the air conditioning for all day, all night, Dubai has a way of making you thirsty. And there's lots of water on offer, but sometimes uh, it's hard to be satisfied by this. You can go to a cafe or a restaurant and they'll offer you many kinds of water. Do you want it cold or room temperature? Do you want it still or sparkling, large or small, local or or overseas? Uh, I'd always choose cold and sparkling, by the way. but we've got these, these choices. And you can order one of those and they'll bring a water and you can enjoy it. But if you've just finished one of those small bottles, you'll realise that you're still thirsty. You need more and you've got to decide, will I spend another 10 or 15 or more dirhams to get the next bottle? I, I keep a mental list of the, the cafes where they've got sort of unlimited table water straight from the tap. Because Dubai, you realise how thirsty you are. As we come to this passage, we will see that our souls need Jesus as much as our bodies need water. Our souls need Jesus as much as our bodies need water. A friend showed me in Australia, showed me this kind of in this passage a few years ago. It has just become more and more real to me as I've just realised my real need for water here. Jesus came from the Father and returned to the Father so that we could drink living water. And our souls need Jesus as much as our bodies need water. So first we'll see that Jesus offers this water. Then we'll think about why only Jesus can give it and a few implications. But listen to Jesus' words. On the last great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now when Jesus stood up on this last day of the feast, people were already thinking about water. Not just because it was hot, but because they were on the last day of the Feast of Booths. And in this feast, uh, people spent a week sort of camping in tents to remember how God had provided for them. 
After God rescued them from Egypt, uh, God had uh, cared for them as they wandered around in the desert. They had no food, no drink, yet God provided food from heaven, water from a rock. They remembered that God is their salvation, God is their hope. Uh, During this festival, they also looked forward, knowing that God promised a day when he would pour out his spirit, pour out rivers of water to refresh our broken and thirsty land. Uh, He would pour out salvation to draw the nations in. Isaiah chapter 12 has a promise like this. From verse 1, Isaiah 12 says, You will say in that day, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. It continues, uh, with, draw, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you'll say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he's done gloriously. Let's, let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. They looked forward to a day of salvation and the centre of it, they with joy would draw water from the wells of salvation. And so on the last day of this feast, there was a tradition where they would go to the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. They would draw some water and carry it carefully up to the temple. And where the animals were sacrificed and the wine was sacrificed, they would also pour out this water, remembering how God had provided water in the desert, looking forward to when they would draw water with well, from the wells of salvation. And it's on that day that Jesus stood up. Everyone was thinking about water as salvation. And Jesus said, well, look to me. On the last great day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Uh, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was saying salvation won't come from the pool of Siloam. Salvation won't come from the fervency of your prayers. Salvation won't come from perfectly obeying the law. Said this salvation you're longing for, your souls long for, You just need to come to me and ask because I will give it. Jesus offers living water. And Jesus alone can offer this living water for two reasons. Because he is the one who came from the Father and he's the one who returned to the Father. We'll see that Jesus offers living water because he's the Christ, the Son of God, who comes from the Father. Uh, the beginning of our passage, there's lots of, there's some suspicions about Jesus. Maybe he is the Christ. It's like the conspiracy theories, kind of, they didn't start this week, this year, or with YouTube. Like, uh, these people said, maybe the, the, the authorities have figured something out. Maybe they know who Jesus is, and they're not telling us. In verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he's the Christ? 
Verse 31, we're told that many believe. Believed. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Later in our passage, uh, we, we hear them continuing to, uh, to say, this really is the prophet. This really is the Christ. There's a lot of expectation, a suspicion maybe this could be the Christ. Yet along with this suspicion that maybe this is the Christ, there's a whole lot of doubt because they think they know the, the saviour that they need. They say, this could be the Christ, but actually we know where this man comes from, and so he couldn't be. Um, they said, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Uh, later on, where others, some say this is the Christ, but others say, if the Christ to come from Galilee, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division. Now, all of these people had some truth. They knew that when God sent his saviour, well, he would be great. It would be miraculous. They knew that when God sent a saviour, he'd promised that the son of David, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. He promised that in Micah. But they're looking at Jesus and said, but you grew up in Galilee. And they don't realise it's possible to actually be born in Bethlehem, which Jesus was, and then to grow up in Galilee. But they've got such a firm picture in their mind of the kind of saviour they need that they're blind to see that Jesus is the one they need. And he's the one they need because he is the Christ, but not just the Christ. He is the Son of God. We've been saying throughout our whole series in John that chapter 20, verse 31, telleth the aim of this whole gospel. John wrote this gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. What qualifies Jesus to be the one who can give us life is that he's both the Christ and the Son of God. And This is where Jesus tells us he's from. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, verse 28, you know me, you know where I'm from. So sure, you might know that I grew up kind of there in, in Nazareth, in Galilee, but I've not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Jesus is the one who's come from God. Yes, he is the Christ, but he's more than the Christ. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And while people looked with longing to the salvation that the Christ would bring, there are also promises throughout the Old Testament that real refreshing, a real salvation would come from God himself. So it's the one who came from the Father, who was both descended from David according to the flesh and also the son of God in power. It's he who was able to give us living water. We covered this a few weeks ago. Who can give life but God and the son of God who does all the works of God? He alone can give living water. He alone can satisfy our thirst because he's the one who gives eternal life. Jesus can give living water because he came from the Father, but Jesus also gives living water because he returned to the Father. 
Anyone who kind of had a, a saviour come, a hero come, a king come, would want that king to stay as long as possible. Because who knows what will come next? Who knows what life will be like after this king? But Jesus came only to return to the Father. And people are confused by this. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where did this man intend to go that will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, to teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. People are confused that a saviour would come only to leave again. Some people might be disappointed that a saviour has come and have great hopes to hear that he's going to leave again. Yet it's because Jesus returns to his father that he brings salvation. Back in the, the history of God's people, Israel, uh, there's a book of Judges that tells of a time when God needed to de- deliver his people. They were constantly oppressed by their enemies, the neighbouring nations. Uh, and God, when the people cried out to God, God would send them saviours, judges. And God would raise up a judge and this judge would come and lead God's people, defeat their enemies, give them freedom. And life would be returned to, to normal uh, for the lifetime of the judge. But again and again throughout that book, there's a cycle. When the judge dies, then the people return to their sin. And when they return to their sin, they're overrun by their enemies and they need to cry out to God and a new saviour needs to be raised up. Because a leader, a king, a judge, a saviour can only save for as long as they're there. Except Jesus. Jesus in verse 33 said, I'll be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And when he offers us living water, actually John explains what this living water is. In verse 39, this he said about the Spirit, whom those, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus needed to leave so that he could save us. The judges could save God's people from their enemies, but not from their own sin. Yet Jesus didn't come to save us from physical enemies, but to save us from our sin. And that's why he came to die. He came to leave. He came for his hour when he would go to the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserved. At the cross, Jesus dealt with our sins, paid for them in full so that they would be wiped away. He came to save us from our sins. And when he rose from the dead, Jesus didn't didn't stay but returned to his Father so that he could send the Spirit. And now that we have the Spirit, then we have his help at those forgiven of sin to now live a new life, uh, to live a life that seeks God and lives for God. 
Jesus gives living water. He can give the spirit because he returned to his father. Now, some of us might be confused by this. Some of us might be disappointed by this. It would be so nice to just have Jesus here beside me. Jesus to speak his comforting words. Jesus to speak wisdom to me. Have to have Jesus with me to do miracles, to be able to provide life and heal. Yet we're told we have something better than Jesus beside us. We have Jesus in us. He needed to return to his Father so that we could have springs of living water. And when he promised that water, notice it wasn't just a drop, it wasn't just a small bottle. He said, rivers of living water will flow from within you. Because Jesus left, he didn't just fix our problem once. He, by his spirit, now dwells in us. He gives us new life. Uh, He gives us new strength. Uh, he, He satisfies our thirst. He gives us the life and the hope we need. Jesus went away so he could offer us lasting salvation, going to the cross so our sins will be taken away forever rising to the Father so that we could have his spirit and have him dwell in us, strengthening us forever. You might wish that Jesus was walking with you, but you have something better. If you trust in him, you have Jesus in you, strengthening you, a river of living water that never runs dry. That means a few things. If Jesus is the one who alone can give living water. Jesus, the one who came from the Father. Jesus is the one who returned to the Father. Uh, It means a few things for us. Uh, The first thing it means is that Jesus alone can satisfy. You know, sometimes we might be thirsty and it seems like a good idea. Someone offers us a big glass of Coke. And at the time, Coke tastes great, doesn't it? It feels refreshing. But then all the sugar, it sort of it dehydrates you. In a little while, you'll, you'll still be thirsty. Big problem for me is, is coffee. Like quite often, even between the services here, I didn't today because it's at the front of my mind, but after the first service, even though I've had some coffees in the morning, I'll see the coffee and it's like, oh, that would refresh me, that'll give me energy. Uh, it's so nice to, to share a coffee with people and it will be good and it will wake me up. But then I'll come back in and I'll sing a few songs and feel my throat getting dry. And I might get up and start speaking and say, oh, my throat is very dry. Like, because coffee, it dries us out. It doesn't really satisfy. And there are lots of things that promise to satisfy us. Lots of places that we look for satisfaction. You may look to wealth to think, if I just had enough wealth, if I could just be secure, not worry about mine or my, my children's future, then, then I'd be satisfied. Things would be okay. You may look to comfort or success. You may just want the respect. You want your, your father, your family to be proud. Maybe you, you look for satisfaction in pleasure, even, even illicit pleasure. Maybe you think that if you just had someone who loved you, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, then everything would be okay. Or you just want a friend. You just want some good friends who will be there for you. 
Some might even think, I I just want a ministry, a ministry where I see Jesus at work. I just need to be part of the right church. Lots of those are good things. But they're not the things that are meant to satisfy us. Uh, They're called, actually, in the Old Testament, broken cisterns. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's offering refreshing water. And we're just kind of drinking more and more coffee, thinking that will refresh my thirst, that will clear my throat, where it never will. God's giving us life in Jesus. Yet we look so many other places to try to build a life for us, to build security, to find hope or meaning or worth. But these are broken systems. Jesus came, he offers us living water and says within us there'll be a river that flows because he alone satisfies. He is the one we were made to know. But secondly, Jesus alone can free us. And in this passage, uh, there's a surprising amount of fear of man. You might notice throughout chapter 7, everyone's got an opinion about Jesus, but no one's willing to speak up. They think he might be the Christ, but they don't speak for fear of the Jews. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus' brothers were obsessed with how Jesus could get popular amongst the, the people. Everyone's worried about what other people think. Yet at the end of this passage, we've got a couple of people who actually stand up, who stand up and say something who stand up in different, to different degrees in support of Jesus. I think that hints that Jesus can free us because when he fills us with his living water, when we are satisfied, then we're freed from seeking these things in other people. Uh, the Pharisees had sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus and under God's hand they didn't. In verse 45, we're told the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. The leaders pretty much say to the guards, you're stu- stupid, uh, the, the crowd, they're stupid. Like, we're the ones who know what God is like. Uh, we're the ones who know what this will be. And we start to see that it's going to cost something to, to stand up for Jesus. While increasingly people are, we see Jesus will be the suffering servant whose time is coming, we see that anyone who aligns themselves with Jesus, they too will suffer. They too will be opposed. But then Nicodemus steps up. We'd met Nicodemus kind of coming to Jesus at night. And we're told Jesus, uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Again, they were saying that none of the rulers believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
And then Nicodemus, who's one of them, he, he stands up and says, actually, maybe we should listen to him. And of course, he's told that uh, he's a fool as well. But what moved Nicodemus? What moved uh, even these, these soldiers to stand up for Jesus, to say something in his defence? We don't know exactly, but it seems like Jesus, Jesus pouring out living water, when Jesus satisfies us, he frees us. He frees us from fear of man because if I have meaning and purpose then in Jesus, I don't need to find meaning and purpose in those around me and I'm free to serve them rather than making them like me. Uh, if, I have, if I know that I have the approval of God, that because of Jesus' death for me and life for me, that I am loved, that I am accepted, then I'm freed from needing acceptance from all those around me. And more than this, if we have Jesus, then we have his spirit in us. We have his spirit who guides us and protects us, who gives us words, who gives us boldness. We have Jesus' power at work in us, which frees us from that fear. So so what will free you from the fear of others? What will free you and strengthen you to stand up for what is true and what is right and what is good? What will strengthen you to speak for Jesus? What's well, being satisfied in him, knowing all he gives, the fullness. Do you have the life you need, the satisfaction, the hope you need in Christ? And finally, Jesus offers you living water. We know that in Dubai, we individuals, we need water. But in Dubai, after a while, you start to see the impact that rain can have on on our land. A couple of times this year, there's been some rain and afterwards I've looked up and the sky has been so blue. Like, you know, there's days where the sky's grey and days when it's more blue. But on those couple of times when the rain has come down and washed away the dust... It is so blue. And I say, I'd forgotten how blue the sky could be. I'd forgotten how beautiful it could be. In a similar way, we go to the desert and it can seem lifeless. It can seem like there's nothing there until there's rainfall and suddenly green springs up throughout the desert. We can forget in our broken world, in our thirsty world, Our world which is so full of sin and suffering that God has a plan for this whole creation. God promises in Isaiah as he's speaking about pouring out his spirit, about pouring out rivers of living water. He tells us that actually he's going to renew the whole creation, that plants will spring up in the desert. We look forward even to in Revelation where we're told we will be there by the river of life. The Bible gives an amazing picture of the future of our world, what he will do in restoring it. But he says to each of us, Jesus comes to each of us today and says, will you come to me? You might have a suspicion about Jesus. Maybe he could, there's something special about him. You might have questions or doubts about Jesus. You might be disappointed in some way with Jesus something he has or hasn't done, some, something he has or hasn't provided, the fact that he doesn't seem to have stayed here with you. But wherever you're coming from, Jesus invites you 
to come. Did you hear who he invited? He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is inviting all of us. He's inviting you. Not just the good, not just the faithful, not those from any family or country. He's saying anyone. And he's not calling you to buy living water. He's not calling you to to give. He's saying, if anyone believes in me, I will give it. I will give it freely. Because he lived that life we should have lived. He went back to the Father, dying the death that we deserved so that he could offer us living water. So will you come to him? Will you leave those broken cisterns, other places where you're seeking meaning or fulfilment or security or hope for the future? Would you look to Jesus? If you've wandered from him, your heart is increasingly finding solace in these things, would you come back to trust Jesus? There's a whole river of living water within you because he went back to the Father and sent you his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you invite us. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Oh, Father, help us to hear your invitation. Help us to come to Jesus. Help us to leave those broken cisterns that cannot hold water, those things that cannot sustain us or refresh us. Help us to come anew or for the first time to Jesus, to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who alone gives us life. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his good and great name that we pray. Amen.